The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, he's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father, how are you? Very fine, Tom, thank you. How are you doing? Pretty good, Father. Great to be here. Yeah. Great to be back with you. We, uh, we've been making a lot of progress with the emails lately, so I'd like to try and continue that trend if we could, Father. And uh, the first email is in regards to the third secret of Fatima. <clears throat> it's from a very faithful viewer, a great friend of the program. And uh, he says, I believe that it is very possible that the third secret text that appears on the uh, Tradition in Action website is in fact the real third secret of Fatima. In this text, Our Lady says that Rome will be destroyed 69 weeks from the year 1959 specifically after Pius Twelfth and before 1960, which would be 1959. The 69 weeks is a reference to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, in which the prophet is given a revelation <clears throat> that Christ would come in 60, 69 weeks uh, from the decree of the king to rebuild Jerusalem. I believe that Our Lady is in fact telling us that 69 years will elapse until the coming of the Antichrist, which would be in 2028 or 2029, Daniel's prophecy is notable because it was written in such a way that it can refer both to Christ and Antichrist. So, Father, would you please give your opinion on this matter of the 69 weeks? Well, it's rather esoteric, but uh, the weeks sometimes do refer to years in prophecies. There's no doubt about that. And uh, it's an interesting correlation because of a uh, statement made by a lady who was ahead of the British Theosophical Society. I've mentioned this before. You know, the Theosophical Societies of England were established by uh, Elena Petrovna Blavatsky, an occultist, uh, a Russian expatriate who moved to England back in the 1800s. And she was very deeply into the occult. Um, uh, long story, I mean, she basically invented what is the Ouija board today uh, as far as communicating with the dead and uh, automatic writing and was into all kinds of occultic practices. And um, she believed there were ascended masters in the Himalayas who were beaming thoughts throughout the world. And um, well, basically the New World Order was part of her, uh, part of her shtick, I'd say also. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, but she was, she was uh, succeeded by another occultist, of course, um, by the name of Annie Besant. And uh, then uh, Annie Besant was succeeded by a woman named Alice Ann Bailey. And the reason I mentioned the Theosophical Societies is that uh, Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, the great convert to the faith in England, who wrote the book The Lord of the World, and published it in 1907, the same year that uh, Pope St. Pius X's encyclical Pascendi against modernism came out. But uh, Monsignor Robert U. Benson, who had a bit of a prophetic uh, 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 
ability himself, I believe, as you can, when you, when you read the Lord of the World, you can see that, um, said that he believed the Antichrist would come out of the theosophical societies. I don't know why he thought that, I didn't explain it that I know of, but he just voiced that opinion that the Antichrist would be a product of the theosophical societies. Um, actually, Alice Ann Bailey and uh, others in the Theosophical Societies believed there would be a world teacher. They were forecasting a world teacher <coughs> who would come into the world and um, basically teach the world its own, the mankind its own divinity. And that world teacher, we're told, is going to be uh, coming into the world and uh, basically uh, preach the divinity of mankind. Uh, the fulfillment of all the Gnostic errors and heresies of history would all come basically out of his mouth. Um, Alice Ann Bailey was asked once uh, when she thought that the world teacher would come. And uh, she said at the rate things were going, this is back in the 1920s, I believe, 1920s or 30s that she said this, that she expected the, the uh, world teacher would come about the year 2025. So as you're reading that, I thought it was kind of interesting how close that comes to the, uh, to the forecast of Alice Ann Bailey that the, uh, the world teacher, the great Gnostic teacher that all mankind is, is God, uh, would come roughly in the same decade, probably in the same half of the same decade. It also took me back to the, what you might call a prophecy of St. Pius X himself in his first encyclical, Asu Premi, in 1903, actually October 4th, 1903, when he said in the beginning of the encyclical, his very first, as they say, that he was terrified to become the Pope at the time because he feared that the Antichrist might be already in the world or soon to come. And that was in 1903 that he wrote that. <clears throat> so... Um, you know, there's a certain convergence here, which is, I find, very interesting. The reason I mention all of that is because, uh, you know, no one can say that the gentleman is wrong in his analysis. He could very well be, be right. Uh, there are certain signs and indications, as St. Pius X himself said, that the Antichrist would not be far off. St. Pius X was referring to the sign of a great apostasy, really. He even explicitly referred to second... Thessalonians chapter 2, in his encyclical, as a reason for his believing that the apostasy, the great apostasy was upon us, <clears throat> even in his day, at least the beginnings of it. So, um, and he might have seen modernism as a major element of that apostasy also, when he refers to modernism as the complexus of all heresies, the gathering together of all heresies. I mean, what is apostasy? but not the denial only of one truth of the faith or another, but the denial of all the truths of the faith, even a, a redefinition of the word faith, which is exactly what he says modernism does. It redefines the very word faith itself. <clears throat> so um, now we see Vatican II, and we see the aftermath of Vatican II. So it all seems to be coming together, doesn't it? So I wouldn't be surprised, but this uh, gentleman is onto, onto something. Mm -hmm. And just adding, adding another element <clears throat> to the overall picture and drawing that in in correlation to all the other things that may well be, be on the right track. 
And you think this um, this world teacher that that Alice Ann Bailey spoke of that that is actually the the Antichrist, or is that some kind of? I do thing? because I believe that's exactly what he, the Antichrist, will teach. Okay. <clears throat> He'll be the uh, the ultimate Gnostic, right? Um, I mean, you know, Gnosticism, as we've talked about before, uh, there's a belief system that, that there's, a, there's a certain hidden knowledge, an occult knowledge, that um, is the key to salvation, you know? And uh, the salvation being that man uh, achieves his own divinity. Um, we see in Mormonism an echo of that. We see in the, uh, all the Gnostic societies and all of the, uh, the Kabbalistic societies, Jewish Kabbalism, and, and so we see, we see all of this, this mentality of the man being God, right? And rediscovering his divinity. And uh, if, you, if you look at the Gnostic societies, even in the world today, this is their message. That salvation for us is <clears throat> coming to the realization that we are God. Uh, the Gnostic societies even talk about uh, three classes of human beings. There are the gross materialists. Then there are the moralists, really, who believe <clears throat> we need to follow a moral law. But then there are the spirituals. The spiritualists are one who don't believe in religion and don't believe in morality because they are beyond that. And they are the ones who now are discovering their own divinity. And the next step for them would be actually to basically ascend into their own divinity. That's their salvation. But one has to go through those three stages <clears throat> to come to the point where you're beyond religion, where you're beyond, you're not religious, you're spiritual. You're beyond morality and moral constraints because those actually come from the evil God, in the sense. You're freeing yourself from those things. And so you are discovering that you, in fact, are God and have been God all along, just imprisoned in a material world, that you're escaping and ascending now to your rightful place and that uh, as more and more human beings realize their divinity, <clears throat> they're, they're passing from this world and coalescing. Now they're coalescing into God. And God is, in a sense, being reassembled, so to speak, from all of these sparks of the divinity. Uh, modernism, you can see how modernism would actually <clears throat> lend itself to that understanding, too. St. Pius X himself pointed out in Bashendi that when the modernist says that we know the, the divine, the divine through our, we experience the divine, we experience the divine within us, that's the modernist teaching. We actually experience the divine within ourselves. And he says the modernists don't always make a distinction as to whether that divine is something distinct from ourselves or is just ourselves. But they all say we're experiencing the divine within ourselves. And uh, that again would, would just couple perfectly with Gnosticism. Wow. So uh, the divine... Uh, the, the, the world teacher is supposed to come and finally ascend the world stage with that one message, really, uh, that mankind is God and uh, now is rediscovering its divinity. Um, and that is going to liberate mankind from its servitude and bondage 
put to a false god, whom we know is actually the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who is the true God. But this is Satan's work. This is his message. This is uh, his answer to the original temptation that works so well to Eve. Eat of the fruit, defy God, and you will be as God yourself. Uh, when, when Eve said, God, God said that if we eat of this fruit of the knowledge, the knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, we will die. And Satan, Luther, Lucifer's answer was, no, no, no. God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like just God. If you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be as God, knowing good and evil. You will be as God. And that is why God wanted you not to eat of that fruit, because he wants to keep you in servitude. He wants to keep you in bondage. He doesn't want you, your eyes to be open and you to realize that you too are God. Well, Satan's still playing the same message, isn't he? He's still playing the same message. He's, I guess he finds that it works very well <laughs> for creatures like us. We uh, kind of like that message and we bite. And um, then the eyes are opened. And we, saw, we find out, uh, to our, much to our regret, not necessarily to our repentance, but to our regret that we make very poor gods. And we are not God. We are creatures and often... Well, we are fallen creatures and sinful creatures, and we need a loving God to redeem us. Right. Okay, so. then uh, let's jump. And, and by, unfortunately, we have a loving God yeah. who redeemed us. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> okay, um, the next email, Father, is rather interesting. It's all the way from Brazil. It's uh, from a Franciscan religious brother. This man identifies himself as one. He, uh, first of all, he apologizes for the, for the bad English, but he says that uh, unfortunately, here in Brazil, we have a lot of problems because a good number of uh, faithful uh, that form the so-called resistance, uh, in quotes, are inclined towards Nazism, as if Hitler and his way of governing were some kind of model for Catholics. They ignore all the paganism uh, in which it is based and the national socialism and the uh, condemnations that, uh, that the church has made. Um, and not only this, Father, but most of them also support fascism and say openly that Pius XII was a liberal. So he asks, Father, he says that you are a very known person in traditionalism, and if you could say some words about this theme, it would help us a lot to solve the problem. He also says that he is contacting other well-known clerics, asking them to do the same. Well, this is very sad. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that, because the Catholic Church has condemned Bolshevism, world socialism, and, uh, but the Catholic Church has condemned also national socialism. Uh, Nazism is absolutely condemned. Uh, fascism is uh, kind of a, a special form, kind of a subset of the same tyranny. Uh, the domination of the state, by the state rather, and uh, a false nationalism that would uh, divinize the nation and even divinize the race as though that is our ultimate uh, identity rather than being, you know, creatures of God, almost as though we're creatures of the state. We don't exist for God. We exist for the state. Uh, we exist for the nation. We exist for the race, right? What could be more the, um, the message of communism than that? To exist for the collective, 
that you have no personal individual value other than what you can do for the state, uh, for the society, for the commune or community in which you live. And again, it all again falls back into the whole mentality of the Great Reset of the, of the so-called future, if there is a future with that. So, in <laughs> any case, Tom, this is very sad. I mean, this has all been absolutely condemned by the Church as a form of idolatry. And, uh, I mean, I, I've noticed that there are some elements in, uh, that have gotten into, um, among traditional Catholics, who seem to have found a, a, a voice there, not, not a great voice, because there are many, most traditional Catholics would be horrified at this and would recognize that this is not Catholicism. But, you know what, it actually reminds me, since we were just talking about Gnosticism, in the early days of the Church, the Gnostics were trying to wheedle their way in with their doctrines. They were trying to get some kind of an opening and a hearing among the Christians uh, to get their Gnostic doctrines accepted. The Gnostics even went so far in their efforts to try to infiltrate traditional real Catholicism of the earlier centuries by producing these false gospels and false scriptures and attributing them, whoever wrote these things, attributing them to St. Thomas the Apostle or attributing them to St. Peter the, or Mary Magdalene. I mean, there are these false gospels we read about as the apocryphal gospels of the Gnostics. And the church knew where they came from <clears throat> when the Catholic Church, and it was the Catholic Church that decided and decreed authoritatively what books belonged in the Bible, what books were actually inspired by God and belonged in the canon of sacred scripture, the church knowingly, wisely, actually infallibly excluded these fake gospels. <clears throat> but they were produced by the Gnostics in order to insinuate their Gnostic teachings as though Christ were some, some kind of a Gnostic teacher like Bartizanes or one of their other, you know, like, like Manes himself, you know, a new Manes, uh, starting uh, to whom the Manichaeans trace their origins. The Manichaeans who deceived St. Augustine for a number of years, right? <clears throat> All of this was circulating back then. All of this was trying to suborn the church. All of it was trying to infect and to, uh, you know, corrupt the teaching of the church and make of Christ simply another Gnostic guru. And I, I see this kind of similar process going on now with the traditional Catholics, where these agents of Nazism, um, they might as well be out-and-out out communists, too, because the idea of fascism being on the right, extreme right, and socialists and so on being on the extreme left is a complete lie. And it's, it's set up to control our thoughts. So we don't see that these things are, are, are one and the same, essentially. Boil them down to their, their essentials, and they're the same. Just uh, domination by the state to control the lives and the, not only the actions, the words and the very thoughts of every man, woman, and child subject to them. And everything is corporate. Everything is collective. They, they destroy the individual uh, with the individual, you know, individual soul, individual uh, responsibility before God, now you're responsible only to one thing, and that is to the state, the party, the collective. That's what you're responsible for. 
That's why you exist, to serve that. Um, so, again, it, it is something entirely godless, except insofar as you redefine God as the state, the collective, the party, the, the society in which you live. You know? That alone gives you purpose. That alone gives you value. Um, this is completely antithetical to um, the very fundamental, most fundamental concept of Christianity, Catholicism. They're, I, they're the same, right? Um, and uh, that is the individual person is created by God in a unique act to create this person, and this unique person, uh, in, in God's image and likeness. And that life has a value unto itself, right? It's not the state or the collective or anyone else in the world who gives value to the life of that person. It's, we live in a society uh, that is known abortion, the tragedy, the travesty of abortion, in which the mother is going, has to assign the value to the life of the child she conceives. That is emblematic of the, society, of the of communist society in which the individual life of a person depends upon what value is put on that person <clears throat> by somebody else. And, uh, but in, in our faith, the, life of the, the value of the life of the person is, is put in the person by God himself, who creates that soul. <clears throat> in his own image and likeness, and destined not only for justification, but glorification and sanctification on earth, glorification in heaven. Uh, so I'm, I'm just um, so dismayed to hear this, that in South America, you say, um, that these neo-Gnostic, is what I would consider them, fascists and, uh, and uh, leftists are, are trying to insinuate their way into the traditional Catholic faith there. And uh, they will corrupt it, destroy it, um, if they're allowed. The traditional Catholics there have to recognize them for what they are, denounce them, and absolutely resist, resist them in every way. Absolutely. Okay. Next. I'd like to know more about that. So uh, yeah. if, if there's more information to be had, I'd like to know what's going on here. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. We can do that. Um, okay. Then the next one, Father, uh, this viewer says uh, that he has a question regarding the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament uh, relating to the Catholic Church's ceremonial practices. So he asked, do the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament uh, differ to the, to the Catholic traditions in keeping of certain holy days? incense and bells and candles and fastings, etc., uh, and many other traditions of the church. He says, obviously Catholics do not hold circumcision and dietary laws, as St. Paul has stated, although many modernists will claim that you do not need these things anymore because of the new law founded by Christ. Universally, most still view the moral laws as still in effect, but how should a traditional Catholic respond to those who think that the church's traditions are not necessary anymore and that they are too similar to the old ceremonial Jewish laws? Well, I guess I've never heard anyone present it quite that way, so I'd have to, I haven't really thought about that too much, right? So if I understood correctly here, uh, they're saying that, that there are those who claim that the church's ceremonies have too many elements from the Old Testament ceremonies <clears throat> and they should be abolished? Is that what they're suggesting others are saying? Yes, that's my understanding. Oh, okay. Well, I had never heard it quite put that way, frankly. 
Uh, I've never had anyone put it to me that way, anyway, that the church's ceremonies have too many elements of the Old Testament. Of course, we, we realize that the elements of Old Testament ceremonies and, and uh, so on were basically prophecies and figures of the coming of our Lord, right? And if someone were to say to me, well, uh, we should take part in Seder meals and Passover meals, I would say, no, we shouldn't. That is all finished by Christ. And his very uh, participation in these things, uh, he was fulfilling them once and for all and bringing them to an end because he was the fulfillment of these things. But... Um, I, I'm, I guess what, I, what I'm really wondering is I'm trying to work out in my mind exactly what Old Testament ceremonies he's referring to or they're referring to when they talk to him, <clears throat> saying this should be discontinued, that should be discontinued. Get, I mean, give me some examples of exactly what he's talking about here. Yeah. Are there <clears throat> certain Old Testament ceremonial elements uh, um, <clears throat> that are preserved... Uh, in the letter, he mentions incense, right? Mm -hmm. But um, we do preserve those. I've never heard anybody say we shouldn't be using incense because they used it in the Old Testament. Someone might say, well, we shouldn't use incense because it was burned before pagan idols, I suppose. I've never heard anybody say since they used it in the Old Testament, it shouldn't be used. After all, when you read the book of the Apocalypse, you read about the the elders, the crowns, the censors, you read about the insensations in heaven, right? We read about how these represent this, the prayers of the saints. You read about the odor of sweetness of sacrifice rising up before God in the Old Testament. But we see these things mirrored in the, in the liturgy in heaven in the book of the Apocalypse, or what some call the book of Revelations. Right? So how one could read the book of the last book of the Bible, not the last one written, actually the second last book of the Bible, uh, the Apocalypse, the Revelation. <clears throat> the Gospel of St. John was the last book actually written, as St. Jerome testifies. But if you see the liturgy as it is portrayed there, the, the heavenly liturgy, it uses these elements. So how could one argue that all of these things should be discontinued. Um, now one might say, well, of course, in heaven, there's no incense in heaven, right? I mean, not earthly resin that we get from trees and, and so on. Well, no, I mean, I would have to agree, you know. But to uh, realize that those represent the prayers of the saints, even in heaven, rising before God, um, and then to mirror that on earth and to show those elements in our earthly worship of God, there's nothing wrong with that. So I'm just puzzled why someone would object to all of that. Okay. Uh, as long as one realizes that the, the uh, figures of the Old Testament with regard to our Lord, the Paschal Lamb and so on, have been fulfilled in our Lord. And we don't need to keep repeating in figure, what we have, in fact, and that is the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Yeah. As far as the other elements, I, I don't see why one would argue against them. 
Yeah. Really? Do you? <laughs> no. The only, I mean, I think um, he mentions the um, some of the dietary laws he calls them and, and circumcision and, and things like that um, being kind of well even the dietary laws I mean uh, we we eat pork yeah. right yeah. I mean but red-blooded Catholic doesn't eat bacon I enjoy bacon you know so we don't follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament maybe he's talking about fasting and abstinence but we do eat fish we eat crustaceans right um, but he might, he might be thinking of fasting. I don't know that he mentions fasting exactly. But, I mean, our Lord himself says to his apostles, there are certain kinds of evil spirits that can be cast out only by prayer and fasting. So our Lord actually endorses the practice as something very pleasing to God. As a, it's adding a mortification uh, and sacrifice to, fast, to prayer. When you add that, when you make that, that connection between prayer and sacrifice, you've got a very powerful combination there, as our Lord himself testifies. So I can't imagine somebody arguing that you know, Christians uh, should leave fasting itself behind. Um, so I, mean, I guess I'm just looking for some more and better examples that they might, people who might approach him would try to make a case that we should eliminate any Old Testament practices from uh, from the sacred liturgy. Okay. All right. Then the next email is rather heartfelt, Father. So I'd just like to read through this and um, and get your response to it and your advice for this viewer. She says that I would like to join the Catholic Church, but I do not know enough to even know if I'm being lied to. She says, I have read everything I can for about a year now concerning Vatican II and the Novus Ordo and um, etc. Father Jenkins' videos make so much sense to me, but I am not sure how to apply what he teaches into finding a chapel. With what I think I know, the Novus Ordo churches around us will not do. We live in a very liberal city and we cannot leave for a few years. I'm not sure if we should just pinch our nose and join the local liberal parish. That seems insane. I cry just thinking of it. You have to pinch your nose, close your eyes, and plug your ears. Yes. <laughs> That'd be insane. But she says, I, I do not know where to turn, Father. She says, I think the devil is trying to keep us away from something good. I do not want to be a heretic. I do not want to cause any problems. I just want my children and myself and my spouse to be baptized and to be saved from the fires of hell. She says, I'm feeling a lot of pressure on my soul to get my family baptized. I'm not Catholic, and I'm just, just not sure how to go about this, Father. So any advice for this suffering soul? Well, um, I can see the quandary uh, this dear soul is in, and if I knew where he or she lived, we might know of a real reliable traditional Catholic priest uh, that to whom we could direct this individual, you know, and then he or she would not hopefully have to fear being lied to or have the faith misrepresented. Um, I'd like to send a copy of the Catechism, if the person doesn't already have a copy of the Catechism, and they could obtain they can obtain certain things online: the traditional Catholic Catechism. They can obtain uh, even a copy of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, which is the the gold standard, right? Um, and uh, also the traditional Catholic Missal to know what the Mass and sacraments are. They can watch the Mass online, the traditional Mass online, and see what it is. 
But ideally, they'd find a traditional Catholic priest within uh, traveling distance of them, where they could go and actually sit down, learn the faith, and receive the sacraments. So let's find out where they are and see if we can't help them find somebody. Absolutely. Uh, in the, an oasis in the desert, you know. Absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> Meanwhile, we'll certainly pray for them. Yes. We do pray for those who do email us and ask these questions. So even if we're not getting to answer your questions right away, uh, you're still being prayed for and remembered at, at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So you can count on that. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> Next mm -hmm. email, this viewer says... Um, as we know, the sodomite perversion is condemned in both the Old and New Testaments. Additionally, the Church has branded sodomy as one of the four sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. So why didn't our Lord himself, during his incarnation, directly condemn the sodomite perversion? I think he didn't need to. Really? In the sense that in those days, I think it was considered to be perverted. I think it was universally considered to be perverted, right? God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, I think, was a very uh, present reality in the minds of the people. I mean, the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah were still, were still within days' journeys of these people. Uh, no, I, I think they, they saw how evil this was and realized that's, that it was not only a perversion, but it was uh, something that would be punished severely, not tolerated, because it would be considered to be so evil. Um, but our Lord does reference Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And he, he actually does say, it's rather interesting, he says, woe to you. He says, woe to, he was talking about cities of, uh, that were extended in his own time. He was talking about um, societies that were actually on the face of the, face of the earth uh, during his own time. And he said, woe to them, because if the signs and wonders uh, that have been for, performed in you, that you've witnessed, had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Um, so he brings up examples of God's judgment uh, destructive judgment against these peoples, including Sodom and Gomorrah, and says uh, very clearly that if, if they, those people who were destroyed for their perversions and terrible crimes, if they had seen what you had seen and was seen, if you had heard what you had heard, they would have repented, and you haven't. So you can expect far worse if we can uh, interpret our Lord's word that way, and I think we can. Remember the woes? Our Lord pronounced them, right? Woe to you, he says. Uh, and for that very reason. Because he was there personally, and he was preaching personally, the Son of God, and working miracles among them. And he did, in fact, reference that destruction. And Tom, the fact that our Lord referenced that destruction, I think, is testimony to the fact that those people knew. They knew what had happened. And they knew God's judgment, how severe it was. No, I don't think our Lord needed to single that out. I mean, our Lord did not read down the list of sins uh, all over again, you know. But he had come was to condemn the sinfulness of that age and including the leaders of his own people who were leading others astray. 
And our Lord did condemn the adultery of the, um, even of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, right? In putting their wives away and taking other wives in divorce, right? That they had perverted God's law. And uh, we, we talked about that before, right? Yes. Uh, how they used Moses as a cover uh, for their own, essentially for their own adultery. Right. Even as they were stoning others to death for adultery. Right. But uh, no, I, I don't think uh, we need to wonder too much why our Lord didn't condemn that. I think he did, in fact, uh, implicitly condemn uh, the sin of Solomon, the sin of Gomorrah, uh, even in making this reference, saying you can expect even worse. Mm -hmm. okay. All right. Uh, this next viewer, he um, mentions a sermon given here at Immaculate Conception, and he says that the, the priest references the final judgment. And um, <clears throat> he mentions uh, that all of humanity from Adam to the present day, all the living and all the dead, will be judged at the second coming. So my question is, when we die and go to purgatory and heaven or, or hell, are we not already judged? Uh, the priest mentioned that saints will stand with the condemned, and we are then re-judged. Is that true, Father? The saints will stand with the condemned. To be re-judged at the second coming. <clears throat> to be re-judged. Well, I don't know who the priest is. I did not. I uh, never said anything about re-judgment or anything like that. Right? Okay. Somebody's reading into that clearly in his own words, but the fact is that when we die, we will be judged. And that's true. That's called the particular judgment. And at that particular judgment, each and every one of us will know the rightness or wrongness of the decisions we've made based upon our love for God or our lack of love for God. That is a rejection of God's love. That's sin, right? And we will know God's justice and mercy with regard to ourselves personally. And our, that knowledge will be absolute, that we will have complete knowledge of God's judgment, of all that we've thought, said, done, and all the decisions we've made. And we will acknowledge the perfection of God's judgment, judgment and mercy towards ourselves personally, individually. But that's not the end of it all, because there's much more to it, and that is what will be accomplished at the last judgment, when we will learn the justice and mercy of God with regard to every single human being He ever created. And we will learn there how God judges everyone. So. When I die and I go before the judgment seat of God, I will know God's judgment of me personally, and I will know that perfectly, and I will stand it, and I will accept it perfect, perfectly. I will have no argument to the contrary. Uh, but I will not know, and I will not understand God's judgment about everyone else. Well, at the last judgment, I will be given to know and understand God's judgment about every other human being. And so everything will be resolved. And either in heaven or in hell forever, I will have to acknowledge the perfect mercy, 
as well as the perfect justice of God toward every single creature. And that will complete my understanding and my actually... That will complete my glorification in heaven with that knowledge, and I can praise God and love Him with, you know, uh, out reservation with right? all of my questions being answered. Or in hell to have to deal with the fact that uh, I see God's perfect justice and perfect mercy, even in the fact that I'm in hell. And not only that I'm there, but that anybody else is there, anyone else, everyone else who's there. I will understand that God is merciful and God is just perfectly. Um, you see, they're not the same thing. And I will not be rejudged, and no one will be rejudged at the last judgment. <clears throat> As though it's going to be like, oh, well, let's, let's review all these cases again. Now we've got everybody together again. Okay, uh, you know, let's call witnesses and have a big proceeding here. It's not, nothing of the kind. <clears throat> it, um, the judgment of each individual soul has taken place, and now I will know what that is. And you will too. Everyone will know. Um, so, anyway, I hope that yeah. clarifies things a bit. Right? Yeah. It's as though it's not complete. The judgment is not complete until that moment. Uh, in the sense that it, it is complete for God. But God wants me to know. And each and every one of us to know. Right? right. His judgments. And um, God wants each and every one of us to know his justice and his mercy, and we will. Okay. Yeah. Then um, perhaps this can be the last email, Father. I know we had another topic that we wanted to get to, but okay. this... Well, we can bring that up at the end. I sure, yeah, yeah. This, um, this viewer says, in, in talking with people who have an unreasonable trust in the media and Democrats, I find that they also have an unreasonable <clears throat> hatred of President Trump. What is the best way to approach people like this who are otherwise somewhat reasonable? Well, you know, that's, a, that's actually a fairly good question yes. because I've, uh, have you encountered people like oh, this? Oh, yes, absolutely. And so have I. Think I we all have, you know? yes. and, and it's just, um, it's irrational. I mean, but you can see why. I mean, if you watched nothing but CNN, in MSNBC, and, and you were subject to the constant, constant propaganda, right? right. About the Trump monster and all the rest, and all these terrible things. <clears throat> he caged, cages child, immigrant children, tears the families apart. But you never hear the rest of the story. They don't tell you that Obama was the one who started all this. <clears throat> and they're actually just trying to, well, among other things, make sure that the, the youngsters coming through are their children. <laughs> You know, to begin with, and not being trafficked, and so on. You, know, you never hear the, the rest of the story. You know, it's always couched in the worst possible terms. And I think that, that would be enough to convince anybody. It's like brainwashing. And is anything, any brainwashing, there's no, it's not rational. It's just this, this uh, just sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction, just a, a programmed reaction. It's almost like Pavlov's dog salivating at the sound of a bell. Uh, it's not, there's no thought involved. It's all passion that dictates this. And, uh, you know, how do you reason with the irrational? How do you reason with the anti-rational? I mean, one might say, okay, look, you're, you're 
just going on and on and on here with all this invective against Donald Trump. And by the way, no, nobody is that I know of is trying to canonize Donald Trump. Nobody considers him to be a paragon of great Christian virtue, necessarily. Um, uh, there are people I know who speak highly of him for personal traits, and there are others who don't speak so highly of him with regard to personal traits, especially with regard to the past. Uh, but that's neither here nor there, what you think of him personally. okay? But these, these folks are, are just all about what they think about him personally. And so you'd ask him, well, what exactly are you speaking of? Okay, can you give me examples? <clears throat> you're speaking in generalities, and you're condemning him uh, for being a bad, bad man, you know, who does these, all these terrible things. And um, what, what exactly are you referring to? You know, we, we generally, as, uh, certainly as Catholics, <clears throat> but anybody even nominally Christian, we have to acknowledge that there has to be some evidence of a crime before you start telling everybody that somebody is a criminal. So what exactly, what exactly has he done? And uh, when I've asked people that, what exactly is it that um, makes him, orange man bad? And uh, they have a hard time, you know, zeroing in on any one individual thing. It's just that he's bad. He's bad. He's just bad. So he must be guilty of all these terrible things because he's just bad. Um, and, you know, you, you can make the point with him. Well, uh, you know, in order to make that judgment, you, you need to have some uh, specific accusations to make and that are not only just suspicions, not rash suspicions and rash judgments. You need to know he's actually guilty of some crimes, moral or civil crimes. Well, they might say, well, he incited that, a, a riot, you know, to an insurrection to take over the, the government because he knows that he lost and he incited all these lies about fraud and so on. You say, well, have you looked into evidence? Well, there is no evidence. They <clears throat> say, well, well, how do you know there's no evidence? Well, all these courts decided that he, there was no evidence. Say, well, actually, the courts just didn't even look at the evidence. That's what they refused to hear the case <clears throat> on the grounds that they said he had no standing. <clears throat> That's not saying there is no evidence. Quite the contrary. They're just saying, well, we're not even willing to look at evidence, okay? So, I mean, you, you can say these things, and you can actually ask them to check it out. And they can check it out and find out that you're, you're right. But it doesn't change He's bad, and there's, there, there must be things, terrible, terrible things that he's done. And no matter what they try to bring up, uh, you can actually show that it is bunk, that, that you can debunk what they say, Even if, especially if you get them to go and check it out. But I, I found, anyway, Tom, most of them are not interested in checking anything out. <clears throat> Um, they just, they don't care. They don't care because they're, they're comfortable, well, hating him. They are. I mean, they've been taught hatred. And uh, this is the thing uh, about the modern day. You know, good is bad, up is down. Uh, everything is the reverse. 
That's what perversion is called. You know? And hate is love, and love is hate. It's 1984. We're living 1984 right now. We're living a novel <laughs> where uh, Newspeak has taken hold in the media, and uh, we are hateful because we say white things. And they are not hateful when they burn things to the ground. That's love. Attacking, burning, assaulting, that's what love does now. And hating Donald Trump, that's love. That's not hate. So um, it's, they, they, there's a reason why they, they call it Trump derangement syndrome. And I, I would tend to think that your conversations, if they can call them conversations with people who have that, that you can see why they would call it Trump derangement syndrome, because it's not something rational, right? That's your experience, too, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. So if the person is asking, how do we deal with that? It's like saying, well, how do you reason with what is uh, essentially unreasonable and is actually built upon the rejection of reason, which is the, amount, which is the result of brainwashing and indoctrination, right? Okay by the mainstream media today, you'd almost have to deprogram them. You'd almost have to deprogram them, because they're programmed. How do you do that? They're all Manchurian <laughs> candidates. Yes. Well, I, I'm not really into deprogramming. <laughs> I don't necessarily even recommend it, <laughs> you know, because I, it can be so terribly abused, you know. But uh, in any case, I think they're programmed to just react that way, thoughtlessly, mindlessly, hatefully. Right. So, wow. <clears throat> and not because I, you know, think Donald Trump is perfect. It's just that um, I think he has tried to do some very good things, you know, and. Uh, but they're things that cross the leftists, and so he has to be demonized. Yep. They have demonized him. Yep. All right. Then, uh, <clears throat> Father, this last topic I wanted to get into, um, <laughs> Francis. We, uh, we haven't, haven't uh, really covered too much, too much Francis on the mm -hmm. program uh, as, as of late. But I have a, an article here from Breitbart. Um, the, the title is Pope Francis Warns of Second Great Flood from Global Warming. Uh, it says, Pope Francis has warned of the possibility of a second great flood like that of Noah's time if humanity fails to address global warming. And apparently, uh, Father, this is from a book that is uh, scheduled to be released on uh, Tuesday today, actually. The book is titled Of Vices and Virtues. And uh, the article provides a few quotes, Father. Um, we, could, <laughs> we could go through all of them uh, explaining uh, the many, many... Um, I don't even know the right word to use to explain <laughs> some of these things, but but the the quote here, Father, he says a the fantasies of Francis. Yeah, <laughs> he says a great flood, perhaps due to a rise in temperature and the melting of the glaciers, is what will happen now if we continue along the same path. So, Father, what's your reaction to this? What do you think of uh, Francis' warning of a second great flood? Well. It depends on whether or not you believe sacred scripture and divine revelation. If you believe sacred scripture and divine revelation, 
instead of the fantastic fantasies of Francis, <clears throat> then you have to hear the words of God after Noah. And uh, when God promised that never again would he destroy the world by flood. And it was made very clear, and God said, I will set my bow in the clouds, the rainbow, right? As a reminder of a covenant that I have with you. It was actually a covenant that God entered into with the remainder of the human race, that he would not destroy the world by flood again. Francis evidently does not believe that. It's just one of many things of divine revelation that Francis questions or denies outright. And it will be interesting to see how the apologists for Francis, and I'm talking about the conservative Novus Ordos, who insist that Francis must be the Pope no matter what, and you must not dare question it. Again, how they will distort and corrupt the idea of the papacy itself, how they will attack the Catholic understanding of the papacy in order to <clears throat> somehow <clears throat> avoid questioning Francis. But to make the papacy fit Francis, they're not making Francis fit the papacy. They're trying to. They're, they're adulting, adulting. Uh, sorry, adjusting and adulterating the, the papacy in order to somehow make it fit Francis and his denials of not only Catholic dogmas but of divine revelation itself. But eventually, they have to get to the conclusion where at least they, in practice, act as though Francis is not the successor of Peter, only, not even only the successor of Christ, but somehow they have to see Francis as the successor of God, who is able to countermand God's own orders, and now predict that despite God's own word revealed in the book of Genesis, that God is contemplating striking the world with a flood because of global warming. Now, how that would be explained, <clears throat> Francis might say, well, when God made that promise that he's not going to destroy the world with a flood, he probably, you know, wasn't aware of what we we're going to do with this global warming. And so, you know, obviously he, he, could, he changed his mind, right? So he, maybe he's more like Allah. I mean, after all, Francis says they all worship the same God. So maybe he's thinking more of God as Allah who can do that. Because Allah, you know, is very quixotic, about very willful about the things he does, and he very changeable. But the concept of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, the Catholic concept of God, does not allow that. You know, um, there are no contradictions in God or by God. Okay, uh, God is uh, the God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. He is the God who is infinite truth. Right. Um, so when we read sacred scripture and divine revelation, we take it seriously and say, this is the word of God and this is true. Uh, God will not destroy the world by flood. Rather, we read in the New Testament uh, that the world will be destroyed finally as by fire, that that will be the agents, <laughs> agents of the world's destruction uh, and, may very, and by our own hands, you know. So, um, you know, Francis is not a Catholic. He doesn't believe as a Catholic. He doesn't even believe as a Christian, even in the broad sense of the term. He doesn't believe uh, in, in dogma itself as unchangeable truth. And I think this is simply a, um, 
a manifestation of that uh, concerning Francis. And um, I think those who follow him, follow him at their own peril. But he's, you know, Tom, it, it amazed me. You know, there was a great deal of talk about election fraud. And uh, I think you might have just brought it up at some point <laughs> yourself here. And um, there were those who believed that fraud was taking place in Pennsylvania and in Georgia and Arizona and so on. We're trying to follow the trail, okay? They're trying to follow the trail of the fraud, the digital fraud, that was kind of the, the, the massive side of the fraud other than the manipulation of ballots in polling, um, in polling places or balloting places in these various states. There is the question of Dominion and Scorecard and all the digital thing that they found that these computers were actually online and therefore subject to manipulation not only subject to manipulation during the election balloting uh, within this country, but also from servers in other countries. And it's interesting to see the development as they, as they researched and they followed the line, they followed the line, and they came, finally came to Italy, where Leonardo in Italy was seen as one of the main culprits <coughs> in the online manipulation of the ballot count, and then to the Vatican. They took it right to the Vatican, which would be Francis's home turf there, obviously. But notice, as soon as it went there, it was shut down. That was the end of it. It was shut down, all this discussion, by the social media, this was all raging all that time until the finger was pointed at the Vatican and all of a sudden everything went dark. Like somebody threw a switch, you can't go there. And uh, we have every reason to believe that Francis has everything to do with Biden being elected. That he, that he personally, I mean, I, can I prove it? No. But, you know, as far as the things that he was saying leading up to that election, for years leading up to the election, the things that were pulled, <laughs> uh, the chicanery that was pulled in the days before the election, or the weeks before the election by Francis with his encyclical and so on, and the working, working through the uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and so on, as far as influencing the election here in the States, talk about collusion. It is very credible, let's put it this way, it is very credible that, yes, the Vatican was pulling some strings here uh, with regard to the election of the current resident of the White House. <laughs> right? Um, and then that's, that's the one, the one uh, shall we say, um, element of the election fraud that could not be allowed to go any farther. And so that's when they shut, shut down any such discussion, right? And made it like a, a mortal sin to even talk about it anymore, right? Did, did, did you notice the same, did oh, you yeah. notice the same thing? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who noticed this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Francis has a lot, uh, shall we say, um, 
a lot of a lot of skeletons in the closet there, uh, and uh, still has more skeletons there than have even appeared <laughs> to us. Right? Someday, um, when I when I go for judgment, I will know my own personal merits and demerits in the eyes of God. But at the last judgment, <laughs> to return to a former theme here at the show, uh, there are going to be a lot of things revealed there. And that's when I can actually uh, pay attention to them because at the particular judgment, my, my entire concern will be about how I am judged. But that will be settled at the last judgment. And then I will be able to see at that last general judgment how God judges all of this. And, uh, well, we, then we will know. Then we will know. Yep. Well, Father, could we perhaps end on a positive note? Do you have any words of encouragement for us? We know how it turns out, right? Right? Our Lord says, I've overcome the world. Have confidence. He continually rebuked his apostles for their lack of faith and for their fearfulness. And our Lord would rebuke us too for being fearful. Where is our faith? Why is our faith not greater? Why do we not have absolute, absolute faith and confidence in his power and his love and his victory and go forth boldly and confront all of these things you know that's why we're in this situation we're in right now because we haven't been willing to do that we've just been so meek and so mild in the face of attacks on our faith our lord our church our country we consider that to be almost virtuous to but it's it's actually not prudence it's a lack of fortitude and a lack of fortitude traceable to a lack of faith. And so we need to, uh, well, Pope Pius X in the encyclical on modernism said that the chief characteristics of the modernists were audacity and pride, okay? Well, we need a certain fortitude and faith to counter their audacity and their pride. And our faith and confidence in the fact that we're right comes not from our, us, but our faith in Christ. We believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. So if somebody says to us, well, you say this, and what makes you think you're right? And you say, because it's not my doctrine, it's him who sent me, as our Lord said. It's Jesus Christ. I believe that he is the Son of God, and I believe him. And that gives me the conviction that this is right, not because I think it's right, but because I believe it is his word. He is my confidence. I have no confidence in myself at all. We need to have that faith. And we don't have it, unfortunately. At least we don't show it, you know. But if we had that faith then, it would engender a real fortitude then to confront the audacity of those who deny him and those who hate him and those who attack him. We need that fortitude. But, that, but the fortitude has to draw from a very deep faith, and we've got to pray for a strong, strong faith. We've got to set the example of faith. We've got to set the example of faith for our children. Faith is the kind of faith that uh, does not cower at the bottom of a boat in the storm. Faith is the kind of faith that St. Peter showed in second, in uh, second uh, chapter of the book, uh, Acts of the Apostles. When this man who was terrified by a servant girl questioning, saying this man was also one of them, that this Peter goes out and boldly proclaims 
that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is the Redeemer, that he is the Savior to all of the people of Jerusalem. What a transformation overcame him. We need that transformation. We need that, to, that same transformation to overcome our timidity, our terrors, our lack of faith in Christ, and uh, to get out there and, and boldly proclaim what we believe. It's no virtue. We can't hide behind that <clears throat> false prudence anymore. That's mere timidity. Now, the, t the time has come to uh, be very bold in our faith for Christ and humble enough to accept the consequences out of love for him, right? That's what it takes. Absolutely. Well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. And I know all of our emailers do as well. So thank you. Okay. Well, Tom, thank you yep. also. I appreciate yeah, it. No problem. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.